That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, and I do this podcast every week because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there in 1979. I don't want to see you or anyone you know or love going through an experience anything like that. Today is Tuesday, August 21st, 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. In Richland, Washington, as of August 20th, for the first time, a leak of highly radioactive waste has been detected from a double-shelled tank at the Hanford nuclear site in central Washington state. An August 14 memo from the Department of Energy inspectors to the Washington State Department of Ecology acknowledges a highly radioactive chemical waste leak that was detected in early August. Dry radioactive waste was found in two locations in a mound approximately 2 feet by 3 feet by 8 inches. These tanks were supposed to last another 40 years, said Hanford Challenge Executive Director Tom Carpenter. But that thinking has been superseded by this new reality. The 586-square-mile Hanford site on the Columbia River holds two-thirds of the nation's high-level radioactive waste left over from plutonium production during World War II and the Cold War. Plutonium production ended at Hanford in 1988, but it is still the most contaminated nuclear site in the United States. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission may be studying power plant health risks, finally. The agency is considering conducting a large-scale epidemiological study of whether living near a nuclear power plant, such as San Onofre in Southern California, raises health risks. The last time federal officials assessed cancer rates in the communities surrounding nuclear power plants, which was in 1990, they concluded then that radiation releases were insignificant and health risks, if any, were too small to measure. Since that time, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has been relying on those results to inform the public about cancer risks posed by the 104 licensed reactors it governs nationwide. Now, the NRC is trying to decide if it should launch one of the largest epidemiological studies ever conducted to determine if it is a health risk to live near a nuclear facility. Recent epidemiological studies in Germany and France found that children living near certain nuclear reactors were twice as likely to develop leukemia as children who did not. The five-member NRC is expected to vote later this year on a proposal to investigate cancer rates in each census tract within a 30-mile radius of a nuclear reactor and assess cancers in children younger than 15 years old. It would also review cases of leukemia, a cancer associated with radiation exposure in children. The implications of this study could be profound, said Roger Johnson, a retired neuroscience professor and member of the nonprofit environmental group San Clemente Green. If it finds higher cancer risks at one or more nuclear power plants, there will be enormous public pressure to shut down all of them. In a prepared statement, Edison spokeswoman Jennifer Manray said the utility, quote, looks forward to the study results. Southern California Edison announced on Monday that San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station will lose more than 700 employees, nearly a third of its workforce, to layoffs. 
The employees will be let go beginning in the fourth quarter of this year, and after the layoffs, the plant will be left with approximately 1,500 employees. The company stated that efforts were being made to decide how best to operate safely with the new staff load, as well as the realization that Unit 3 of the plant is unlikely to produce power anytime soon. The company also noted that strict state regulatory standards, as well as the need to replace and repair decaying infrastructure, had increased costs at San Onofre. What? They're trying to blame the state and necessary repairs on their laying off more than 700 people? That's just numb nuts. In Washington, the Inspector General at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has launched an investigation into a GOP political appointee for attempting to thwart an agency probe into safety concerns at a Michigan nuclear plant, this according to the Huffington Post. In late May, Gregory Yasko, then the chairman of the NRC, paid a rare visit to the controversial Palisades Power Plant on Lake Michigan. Activists are agitating for the plant's closure due to safety concerns. The plant is represented in Congress by Energy and Commerce Chairman Fred Upton, a Michigan Republican who has long been close to the nuclear industry. While Yasko was touring the plant on May 31st, according to sources, a significant leak of potentially radioactive water was pouring into the control room. Less than two weeks later, the plant was shut down to repair the leak. Yet Yasko was never made aware of the issue while he was inspecting the plant. He asked the NRC's Office of Investigations to look into why the leak was kept from him. Commissioner William Osterdorf, however, wants no such investigation to take place. Shortly after Yasko ordered it, Ostendorf shouted at the top agency investigator, Cheryl McCrary, in front of several NRC employees. He told her that the inquiry should be halted and that it was a, quote, waste of agency resources, end quote, according to the sources and according to Huffington Post. Congressman Dennis Kucinich, Democrat from Ohio, is, as of August 15th, demanding that the Inspector General of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which oversees safety at our nation's nuclear power plants, or so we hope, investigates the agency's handling of the reopening of Davis-Bessey in northern Ohio after cracks were discovered in the S.H.I.E.L.D. building. Kucinich's call comes after the NRC held a hearing in Ohio to reassure the public about the safety at Davis-Bessey. Official answers from NRC employees made at that hearing differed dramatically from what NRC engineers had told Kucinich and his staff previously. At the heart of the issue is cracking discovered in a concrete structure called a shield building. The shield building is supposed to protect the nuclear reactor from outside threats while providing a last-ditch containment structure in the event of disaster. Workers discovered cracking in the structure while replacing the nuclear reactor head. The plant was shut down while First Energy, the owners, studied the cracks. But before an official cause was determined, the plant was restarted last December. Kucinich said, I am concerned that NRC officials are trying to legitimize that decision by readily accepting First Energy's purported cause and the minor remedial actions that First Energy is proposing. And the NRC is actively campaigning for public acceptance of them. First Energy has consistently misled the public about the nature and extent of problems at Davis-Bessey, incurring the largest fine in NRC history as a result of its deceit in concealing the facts about the corrosion of the reactor head. We need a nuclear regulatory commission that tells the public the truth, 
not one that merely repeats the soothing but misleading statements of the reactor's operator. The people of northern Ohio need to know whether or not the shield building remains strong enough to protect them from potential catastrophe. This according to Representative Dennis Kucinich of Ohio. Moving over to Japan, this news just in as of today, that the Japanese government is now most likely to decide to eliminate all nuclear power. This decision was made in a new long-term energy plan that comes amid strong public opposition to atomic energy and ahead of national elections expected in the next few months. This according to government officials familiar with the policy discussion. While it had been widely expected that the government would choose the middle option of reducing dependence to 15%, government officials said today, Tuesday, August 21st, that the council set up by Prime Minister Yoshihiko Noda is now most likely to select the zero nuclear option. Zero nuclear is our hope and goal, one of the officials told Dow Jones Newswire. We are moving towards it, and I don't think others will be aggressively against it. Taking a look at Fukushima, which one always needs to do, the reactors are still continuing to release radioactive materials. Inge Schmitz-Ferenhaek has been an experimental physicist who some 30 years ago analyzed data on nuclear bomb survivors. In an interview with the Japanese news service Manichi, she said, With the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and past atmospheric nuclear tests, the total volume of radioactive material released was clear. In the case of the Fukushima crisis, however, we still don't know how much radioactive material has been released. Nuclear fuel that far exceeds the nuclear bombs in both quality and quantity remain in very vulnerable conditions, and it's unclear whether it will be possible to retrieve them safely in the future. While the amount of radioactive material being released may be far less than immediately after the disaster began, the reactors still continue to release these materials. The government needs to recognize the gravity of this situation. Whether the Japanese government recognizes it or not, Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Associates does. He said, I think people are beginning to think maybe we can never dismantle these plants. Maybe we just fill them with concrete and walk away. Gunderson continued, At this point, my mind is changing. I think perhaps on units 1, 2, 3, and 4, the best thing to do is to keep them cool for a couple more years and then entomb them for 300 years and come back. Unit 4 is a different story. We've got to get the fuel out, meaning the fuel in the spent fuel pool, which remains at risk on top of the building. Here's a radiation roundup. Cesium has been detected in pistachio nuts that were found in Japan but imported from the United States. This was the most radioactivity found of any items in this round of tests from Japan, and it showed cesium-137 at 9.54 becquerels per kilogram underneath quote-unquote acceptable levels, but there is no acceptable level of radiation. According to NHK, the U.S. has halted shipments of Japanese beef due to concerns of radioactive contamination from Fukushima. Shipments were due to resume on Saturday, August 11, starting with cattle processed that day. But Japanese officials say the U.S. requested a halt the previous Thursday, saying it wanted to check how Japan is inspecting beef and managing feed to prevent radioactive contamination. Radiation has been found in fish off of Fukushima. 
The fish, known as greenlings, were captured 12 and a half miles off of the Fukushima Daiichi power plant on August 1st. They registered 25,800 becquerels of cesium per kilo, which is 258 times the level the government deems safe for consumption. Now, fishermen around Fukushima have been allowed to fish since June, and they've been catching several kinds of fish and shellfish, but only in areas at least 30 miles from the plant. Those catches, according to officials, have shown only small amounts of radioactivity. The Greenlings have not been caught by fishermen off Fukushima since the massive earthquake and tsunami of March 2011 triggered the meltdowns in reactors at the plant. And based on this reading, it is unlikely they will be allowed to catch them anytime soon. Five eggplants that were mutated and growing all together under one hull were found in Date City, The longest one was 15 centimeters, about 7 inches long. The shortest one, 10 centimeters, which is about 4 to 5 inches long. There is a photo, which will be posted on the Nuclear Hot Seat site, which will show that all of these eggplants are connected. The farmer, Mr. Mori Fuji, who has been a farmer for 55 years and who harvested this set of eggplants, says that he has never seen anything like it. His fields are near Date City in Fukushima, about 61 kilometers or about 35 miles from the Fukushima power plant. Like I said, that photo will be posted on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Late April of 2011, an earless rabbit was born near the border of the 30-kilometer zone around Fukushima. Ms. Shugimoto, the owner of the rabbit, had blood work done in Minamisoma City General Hospital on the 31st of January. The results showed she had cesium already in her body, a total of 338 becquerels of cesium-137 and 134. No word on whether Ms. Shugimoto is of childbearing age, has had children since Fukushima, and if so, the condition of their ears. Last week we heard about mutated butterflies around Fukushima. Now it's the worms that are mutated. And a report from Hokkaido Shinbun with a translation by Mokuzuki Iori. Professor Akimoto of Hokkaido University collected 200 samples of cotton worms from Japanese elms and found 10% of them to be deformed. The deformation rate is normally less than 1%. The professor said their bodies and cast-off skins showed that their legs had necrosis, their feelers were damaged, and or some of them had two abdomens. Professor Akimoto states something must have caused genetic disorder and that it might be radiation from Fukushima. And finally, this report according to Reuters, that the risks of thyroid cancer last the entire life of anyone after they have been exposed to radiation, though leukemia risk peaks in a few years. According to this report, people who survived the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as children continue to have higher-than-normal risk of thyroid cancer more than 50 years after radiation exposure, according to a new study. The National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, reported on this new study, and they said most people, even scientists, have a misconception that the risk of thyroid cancer is only a few years and then it goes away. The risk of leukemia, another cancer tied to radiation exposure, is known to peak a few years after the exposure and then return to normal, 
But the study confirms findings from the United States that people remain at higher risk of thyroid cancer for decades after they've been exposed to radiation. The risk appears to last pretty much your entire life, and that's because thyroid cells are permanently damaged by radiation unless the radiation dose is so high that the cells have been killed completely. And this stray factoid with no explanation as to why Pennsylvania is now distributing potassium iodide tablets for free to people who live in proximity with the Limerick nuclear power plant. If we get an explanation of this one, we will share it with you. Last week, Nuclear Hot Seat spoke with Mary Olson, director of the Southeast Office of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NEARS. One of the stories we'd covered in that podcast was about the nuclear reactor at the Millstone Power Plant in Waterford, Connecticut, shutting down because the cooling water temperature was too high. I also cited a story from two weeks earlier about the Braidwood Nuclear Power Plant in Illinois shutting down because of temperature problems. Here's that story as I read it on the air. In Connecticut, the Millstone Power Plant in Waterford was shut down because water from Long Island Sound used to operate the plant is too hot after the hottest July on record, this according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Water may not be hotter than 75 degrees when used in the cooling plant, and it has been averaging 76.7 degrees. The NRC issued an emergency license amendment last week allowing Millstone, a subsidiary of Dominion, to use an average temperature of several readings in an attempt to gain the system. However, even with the revised method of calculating water temperature, the water was too hot for the plant's operation. Now, they're allowed 75 degrees, but as we reported two weeks ago, the Braidwood nuclear power plants were using water in their cooling ponds that was 102 degrees. No word on why there is the discrepancy between the two. I'll see if we can find that out. After we were off the air, Mary clarified the problems faced by these two reactors. The recording equipment was still rolling, and she graciously gave permission for this information to be used as well. On the heat issue, the hot water, I think that the difference is whether it's the intake or the output issue. There's two levels that matter. One is, are you going to impact, start cooking fish? or versus is the water so hot that you can't condense steam, which is the issue, because as long as you have liquid water, you can cool a core. You know, what do you do with the heat from a reactor? You make steam, and then in order to keep making steam, you have to condense it, and that's what the huge volume of water is for. is isn't for cooling the reactor rods. It's for condensing steam back to liquid water so you can boil it again. And so that condenser is the step where if it's too hot, um, it just won't work your efficiency goes so far down that it becomes, you know, you can't, you can't operate the system. As long as there's liquid water, it's not a nuclear safety issue, but it's like a colossal stupidity. Why would you build a technology that won't work in hot water when the planet is warming? It's where we just have to start shaming them. Why would you build a technology that requires cold water when you're not going to be able to get it? I mean, $10 billion. I mean, it just shows them up for what they are, which is a money machine for the corporations. That's all it is. So thank you, Mary, for the clarification. We will be back with a full interview on next week's podcast. We're going to move on to the holistic healing radiation protection tip for the week. But before I do, I would like to remind you that the information that follows is offered as information and education only and is not intended to be a recommendation of foods to eat, 
supplements to take, treatments to engage in, treatments to not engage in, or any other medical or semi-medical suggestion. For that, you need to see a doctor, nutritionist, or other licensed health care professional. The basics of an anti-radiation diet are much the same as for a diet to support healing from cancer, leaky gut, or a long line of autoimmune difficulties. These are well-known fact-based diets that are recommended by physicians. It's a basic diet for health, and as such, it would probably help clear up food allergies or other issues some of us might face. No adrenal rush, no sugar rush, no jolts to a higher plane of biochemical whoopee in your body. Just good nutrition, optimized so your body can accept it and stay strong, detoxified, and better able to weather the ever-growing nuclear exposure that we face. An anti-radiation diet will focus on the following food factors. Avoid sugars, sweets, wheat, and all gluten products. Eat miso soup. Just be careful about where and when it was sourced. Good quality organic miso stays fresh just about forever when you keep it under refrigeration. So if you find any from before Fukushima or made somewhere other than the area around Japan, grab as much of it as you can. The good news is that miso has to be aged, so you may find some that do predate May 11th of 2011. Eat brassica vegetables, such as cabbage and Brussels sprouts, and high beta-carotene vegetables, such as carrots. Beans and lentils are also good foods for your body. High nucleotide content foods for repair include spirulina, chlorella, algae, yeast, sardines, liver, anchovies, and mackerel, all my favorite flavors of ice cream. Again, be aware of where these foods are sourced, especially the spirulina, the chlorella, and the algae. Whenever possible, have them sourced from before Fukushima or places other than the Pacific Ocean. Cod liver oil, again be aware of the sourcing, and olive oil are good in this diet. And be sure to take a good multivitamin, multimineral supplement, as well as antioxidants. A diet of this sort will help you resist the negative effects of radiation exposure and just might help you with other health problems as well. Remember to always check with your health care professionals before adopting any changes to your diet or to your supplementation program. And here's a final thought, and it is time sensitive. If you haven't already done so, there's a call out for you, yes you, to contact your congressional representative and senators and urge them to attend the September 20 briefing on nuclear issues being conducted in the Capitol building. It's being put together by the Coalition Against Nukes as part of the three-day rally for a nuclear-free future. This is something any one of us can do from the comfort of our homes, a little analog activism in a digital world. I can't overstress the importance of you taking this action. Most of Congress is already in the pocket of the nuclear industry. It's the money. It's the re-election money that they're taking. So these people haven't necessarily heard what the issues look like from an anti-nuclear perspective. And we believe that once they have this information, they're going to look at the issue and perhaps even look at their money in a different way. We've got an A-team lineup of speakers for the briefing, including 
Dr. Katherine Thomason, who is Executive Director of Physicians for Social Responsibility, speaking on the health impact of radiation. Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation on the relationship between nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. Testimony on the state of the decrepit U.S. nuclear fleet from Michael Marriott of NEARS. Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear will address the dangers of the GE Mark I reactor designs. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds will update us and answer questions about the Fukushima catastrophe and the Fukushima reactors in relation to our own nuclear plans. And Arjun Makajani, author of Carbon-Free and Nuclear-Free, a Roadmap for U.S. Energy Policy, as well as a world-renowned nuclear expert, will also speak. So how do you make an effective outreach to your congresspeople? The most effective way is to visit them in person and talk directly with them and their staff. Not possible? Next best is pick up that phone, use your unlimited calling minutes, and call them. They take phone calls very seriously and count them almost as highly as a constituent visit. Next on the list is sending a letter. You know, old school, words on paper, stick it in an envelope, put on a stamp. They figure if you took that much time and effort to contact them, you must be serious about what you're saying. Last on the list is sending an email. Now, an email counts or a petition signing counts, meaning they count the numbers that they receive. And the Congressional Office will pay attention to how many emails they get on an issue. But they will not pay attention to the content. It's better than nothing. Just do that as a last-ditch effort. So here's what you can do to get into action. Go to the website coalitionagainstnukes.org and click on the tab Take Action. At the top, you can click on a petition and add your name. Boom, simple as that. Takes a minute. But go back to that page and scroll down to see how you can locate the exact contact information for your congressional office. Once you've done that, call them. A script is even provided that you can read so you know what to say and how to say it. If you scroll a little bit further down the site, you'll find a letter you can send urging your congresspeople to attend the briefing. Copy it, paste it, print it, sign, stick it in an envelope, and send it out into the world. Do any of these steps. Do all of these steps. Help us fill the room with Congress people so we can start getting our nuclear concerns into the national legislative dialogue. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 21st, 2012. You can find us posted on nuclearhotseat.com. Then you click on the blog page and you will find all the podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes Podcasts. Feel free to share the link and forward the download. And if you have thoughts on how to improve Nuclear Hot Seat, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We're also looking for volunteers to help with the website and help with our social media. So if you'd like to help a technical klutz, meaning me over here, I would sure appreciate hearing from you. Info at nuclearhotseat.com is the way to contact me. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep. <laughs>